Well, I have the privilege of, of being with you today, and I just gotta say, I love this time of year. I love the colder weather. I know not everybody agrees, but um, we're entering that season of snow, and uh, my, my kids, when they were in high school, they started snowboarding, and Jennifer and I looked at each other like, we need to find something to do that's, uh, we're active, we get outside and, and get some exercise during the winter as well, so we, we picked up cross-country skiing. That was about three years ago. We haven't had any significant snow in Ohio since. <laughs> I mean, bring back the old-fashioned snowfall that would come down and stay there for all winter and, and eh, none of that. So I've decided I'm praying for snow. How many are praying for snow with me? Uh, there, there's oh, more than I thought. How many are praying that it would never snow again? <laughs> I'm vastly outnumbered, but I'm wondering, how does this work now? I'm praying for one thing, you're praying for the other. It gets a little bit confusing, doesn't it? Who who wins? (laughs) Who wins? Well, God does say he gives us the desires of our heart. (laughs) But, you know, if my desires start and stop with precipitation, (laughs) I probably have a problem, don't I? (laughs) And so God calls us to to not pray for as much as as for those things as as the desire of his heart. What is the desire of his heart? What is he passionate about? What is he passionate about me and and passionate about his church? And and I want my prayer to, to reflect God's passion, reflect God's heart for me and the church, his people, the world. You see, prayer is much more than just kind of trying to manipulate God into what we think we want. As a follower of Jesus, my desire is to pray the things that most reflect the heart of God. And so sometimes that calls me to pray in a different way, in a different direction. And that's what this series is all about, learning to pray different. As we look at Paul's prayers in, in, in his letter to the Uh, the Ephesian people were encouraged to pray in a way that reveals God's heart, reminds us of what's true and changes the way we look at life. So if you're not there already, um, turn to Ephesians chapter one in your Bible or device, it'll also be up here. Last week, Dan looked at a lot of this, but um, we gotta back up before we move forward. In verse 15, it says, for this reason. Well, for what reason? Well, for the reasons that Paul just gave from verses 13 through 14, which in the original language is one great big long run-on sentence. And I love reading this passage because you get the sense that, that Paul's worshiping. That he, he starts with one idea and it leads him to another idea and the, and the more he thinks about that idea, the more excited he gets and he's like, think about this and, and listen to this and how about this and he's getting all excited and, and we get to join Paul in worship. He's worshiping God and inviting us to, to sit in on that. He's worshiping God for who he is and and all that he's done for us. And not only that, but but who we are in light of that. For this reason. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul starts with thanks. 
And then he begins to proactively pray for them. He prays for them what he discerns they need most, a solid confidence in their relationship with God and a certainty that will get them through the messiness of this world. And so then we begin to get into the heart of his prayer in verse 17. I I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And so he prays that we might know God better, not just about God, but to experience him in a personal way. Dan mentioned it last week, it's the difference between knowing all the ingredients and how to make a donut and actually tasting that donut. He's praying they would recognize the truth about him and get to know God's heart for his people. And then here's what we want to look at today. In verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, the first thing he prays is that the eyes of their hearts might be opened, that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. And so Paul is doubling back on what he's just prayed in verse 17. He's praying that they would have spiritual insight that their spiritual eyes will be open to the truths that, are, that surround us, the truths about God, that our hearts, our will, our intellect, our emotions, our passions need to be open to God's truth. Paul's not content to leave these people with a lot of information. He prays that the truth and the information that they hear and understand with their minds will come alive in their hearts, will capture their hearts. He prays for hope, but yeah, hope is, is kind of a peculiar thing. Hope is, for starters, hope is something that, that we can't live without. There's nothing as devastating in being a, in a dark situation and, and just feeling helpless and hopeless with no reason to believe that things will ever get better. And yet hope can endure some, some of the worst the world throws at us. It's interesting, a study was done, they interviewed a, a, a bunch of people who had been in captivity. Prisoners of war who had been in captivity and survived their captivity and, and they began to interview these prisoners of war and, and they began to talk to them and hear their stories. And what they came to realize is that those who survived those camps weren't necessarily the strongest, but those who held on to hope. You see, with hope, there was resiliency within them. But hope is is a peculiar because it doesn't always seem reasonable. For many people, it's a stretch to to think that things will turn out better than they currently are. And, And when you've grown up and you have a family, grown up in family dysfunction or poverty or illness or mistreatment or ridicule or failure or loneliness, what reason is there for hope? A few years ago, I was, I was talking to a friend. He had just gotten back from a business trip and <clears throat> they were reviewing the year and he was talking about this meeting that he was in and different people would present and they present their figures and their projections and, and almost every one of them ended something like this. Like, well, I hope by the end of next year that this will be better. 
or I hope that in the next few months our, our financials will improve. And the boss would look at them every single time and say, hope is not a strategy. We hope that this will happen by this time. And he's like, hope's not a strategy. Give me a plan. Well, there's, there's a little bit of truth to that. Hope is not a strategy. I mean, if you, if you say something like, uh, boy, I sure hope I can lose 15 pounds this winter. But I don't have a plan. I, I'm not doing anything about it. I'm just hoping that it happens. Or maybe on your way in this morning, as you're coming from the parking lot, you're just kind of like, man, I, I hope somebody hands me $100. <laughs> That's not a strategy, is it? You see, hope is not a strategy when it centers on our abilities. Some of us are very hopeful because we simply believe in ourselves. We think that our talents and strengths and skills and resources and and connections and intellect are reason enough to believe that the future holds wonderful things for us. Many athletes put their hope in their abilities and they work hard and, and they should have some hope in their abilities because they work so hard at it. But what happens when they're injured? What happens when they pull a hammy or, or an Achilles or, or get angry on Twitter and lose their job? <laughs> you see, our abilities are not always certain. You see, hope is not a strategy when it centers on our abilities. It's not a strategy when it depends on our morality. Some of us believe that we have reason to be hopeful because the world owes it to me. I've been good, I haven't done anything too terribly awful. It's only natural that the world is going to conspire for my gladness. (laughs) That we're gonna get some kind of good karma coming our way, but hope isn't something that can be bought or earned. And so hope's not a strategy when it's centered on our abilities, our morality, or our optimism. Optimism is when we try to convince ourselves, well, it's, it's not as bad as we think. Things are going to get better someday, somehow, maybe when our ship comes in. You know, it's great to be a positive person, but wishing your way through life is not a way to live. Hope is not a strategy for, man, I, I hope I get taller. I hope Fluffy comes back. Or... Boy, I I hope that I become a genius because I have this test tomorrow. It's not a strategy. Well, Job's friends gave him a lot of bad advice at a time when Job most needed hope. But I think one of Job's friends gives us a great picture of what it looks like when we trust in anything but God for hope. We read in Job chapter eight, verse 11, can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? They're rhetorical questions and the answer is no. (laughs) While still growing and, and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. And he says, such is the destiny of all who forget God, so perishes the hope of the godless. In other words, the grass sprouts up, but there's not enough ground, there's not enough marsh, there's not enough water. There's some semblance of hope at first, but then it quickly withers and dies. 
And he says, as likewise, without God, there's no hope. You know, the people who don't know God, people who don't have a personal experience with God will turn to politics or government or organizations or movements or ideas or philosophies for their hope. But these, these things are unreliable. Hope is not a strategy for living when it lacks substance. And so Job's friend continues in giving us this picture, what they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. When we try to build our hope on on a foundation that's uncertain or unstable, it, it doesn't work. Things like hope and hope or hope and wishes or hope in my abilities, morality or my optimism is like trying to catch fire in my hands. There's no substance so I can't catch it but I end up being burned. You see, hope, hope in the wrong things is weak hope. That's why hope escapes so many people in our world today. It's interesting, though, because it isn't anything new. Even in Paul's day, when he's writing this letter, there was a saying, a motto in in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, that went something like this, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. And there's a sense of hopelessness. Have you ever thought about just the number of hopeless people around you each day? We see people falling for schemes and tricks and and what's really happening is someone is playing on their hopes and offering a silver bullet or a magic potion and, and we grab for it. Instead, the writer of Hebrews gives us another picture. He opens this section talking about Abraham. Abraham received a promise from God and, and God confirmed that promise with an oath. He says, this is sure, this will happen. And we read in in Hebrews chapter six, now when the people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. And so he's saying the assurance of our salvation is centered and guaranteed by God's promise and and oath. God is faithful. We can trust him. He won't deny his own character. He doesn't lie. And so the conclusion is, therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. He's saying, unlike the the spider web that you you can't rely on, you can't lean into, our hope in God and God's character, our hope in God's promises is like an anchor, strong, secure, trustworthy. And so you see, hope is, is not a strategy when it's centered in an uncertainty. But hope can be a strategy for living when it's centered on God. 
and the certainty that we have in Jesus. It's an anchor. You think about anchors. Anchors uh, keep you from drifting. Anchors keep you stable in, in the midst of the storm. In the same way, our hope in Jesus, our certainty in Jesus is our hope that keeps us from wandering all over the place. It keeps us secure when those storms hit. And so hope is a strategy when centered on a certainty. We can be certain that what God does, what God says is is certain and and that's what Paul prays that the eyes of our heart would be open to, to understand and experience. He prays that we'll be open to the certainty that we have in Jesus because our hope is anchored in him. You see, hope can be a strategy. It can drastically, dramatically alter the way we think and live. Hope can alter our course of action and attitudes and plans, our priorities in life. It simply depends on what I'm placing my hope in. I don't know how many remember uh, the comic strip, uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, I remember we would get the Sunday paper, I would rip out those comics, and that'd be the first thing i go to. I love Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin is a, a little boy with a vivid imagination. In fact, his stuffed tiger is his best friend. <laughs> and in, in a comic strip, it says in the first frames, Calvin says, live for the moment is my motto. You never now know how long you've got. In the second frame, he explains his reasoning. He says, you could step into the road tomorrow and wham, you get hit by a cement truck. Then you'd be sorry you put off your pleasures. That's what I say, live for the moment. And then he turns to Hobbes and says, what's your life motto? And Hobbes simply says, my motto is look down the road. Yeah, I think it's a great motto, and I think it's the same with hope. We've got to look down the road believing in God's promises, believing what's coming. Then we can live our lives accordingly with with greater confidence. You see, we can look down the road of hope to the day when when God's promises will be completely fulfilled, be a new heaven and a new earth. He'll make all things new. We'll have new bodies and clear minds. We can live with an eternal perspective because of the hope that we know that is down the road of a certain future. And so we live now looking forward. God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and in doing so he's given you real, substantial, uh, tangible hope in this fallen and messed up world. We can't live the Christian life without that kind of hope. And so hope is a strategy when centered on a certainty, the certainty of God's character, the certainty of God's promises. Hope is a strategy when our hope is anchored in our calling when it's anchored in our calling. I think one of the major truths we take out of Paul's worship service in chapter one is that God chose us. God chose me. God calls us by his grace, not because we've earned it or even deserved it. God has adopted and called us his own, not because we're so lovable and adorable but as a result of his love, as a result of his grace, it's a gift. See, I was reminded of this when we got our Amazon toy catalog in the mail this past week. 
As a little kid, I, I loved this time of year when you would run out to the mailbox, and back then we had catalogs, and, and Sears would send out their catalog, and it was no kidding about that thick about two inches thick, and my brothers and I, we'd take that catalog and we'd be flipping through it and, and we would dog ear the pages that had the toys that we really wanted for Christmas and we would star them and circle them and then we would close it and we would put it where mom and dad could see it. <laughs> and we hoped like, wow, mom and dad, <laughs> look all the things that I want. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, is they developed a strategy. <laughs> They developed the checkmark system. <laughs> and so we had this checkmark system of like, you disobey, you mouth back, you don't do this, you don't do your chore, you get a checkmark. And if you got three checkmarks, that was bad news. <laughs> it was devastating as, as a kid because you got three checkmarks and they, t- they took away a gift. It's like, You're no longer getting all the gifts. That was devastating as a kid. But they weren't without mercy. (laughs) Because this was the rule. If you did something nice, if you were nice to your brother, or you served, or you helped out in some way, you could erase a check mark. Well, we never tested the three three check marks (laughs) We wanted, our, we wanted our presence too much. And so for that time of year, it was a great motivator for great behavior. <laughs> we were on top of our game. Because you, you didn't want to get three check marks. You get that second check mark, all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm improving my behavior. <laughs> and that was great, except I wonder sometimes if we think about our salvation that way. You see, if I can erase enough of the bad check marks in my life by doing good things, by by playing nice and being kind, I might be able to enjoy heaven someday. But then there's the uncertainty that we're haunted by the question, ooh, I wonder if I've missed any check marks. I wonder if there's any check marks I, I don't know about. Have I done enough? Have I erased enough of the bad check marks? There's this uncertainty when it's up to me because I can't trust myself. I can't save myself. It's like telling a drowning man who can't swim, try harder. It goes back to hoping in my abilities. And that's not the way God works. Our hope is in the fact that God called us. He took the first and the the last step toward us. And think about it this way. The the Browns are struggling. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Amen. The Browns are struggling. So imagine tomorrow I call them up and say, hey, you need me on the team. I'm showing, up to, I'm showing up to practice and, because you need a 52-year-old with a four-inch vertical jump. <laughs> well, that's ridiculous, right? But what if, what if they called me? What if the Browns head office called Jonathan and said, hey, we need somebody to carry the coach's coffee on the sidelines? It'd be totally different, isn't it? But here's the point. We don't earn a spot in God's family. 
We read in the previous verses, he chose us in him before the creation of the world, verse four. God calls us, God opens the door, he invites us in, he calls us into his family, he adopts us and then seals the deal with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that is the hope of my calling from God. And for those who have not yet said yes to Jesus and you're searching, Jesus is calling. And I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open to this hope that is in Jesus. Later in the chapter, later in chapter two of Ephesians, Paul gives us this reminder. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world? Well, there it is again, without God equals without hope. Unfortunately, the the passage doesn't stop there, but it continues and it says, but now, that was then, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In 1 Peter, we read, praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, through the cross, our sin and our guilt are removed. Through the resurrection of Jesus, our future is secured. You see, we put our hope in him because the life we have in him is eternal. Ephesus was a wealthy city Paul, in Paul's time. It was a wealthy trade, commerce city. It held the Temple of Diana, one of the ancient wonders of the world. Today, Ephesus is an archaeologist's dream. But the thing is, all of its wealth and glory are gone. It's ruins. But here's what we need to understand The people who once lived there, who said yes to Jesus, who were followers of Jesus, are with him today in the presence of God. Their spiritual riches have never changed. And so Paul continues, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And so Paul is praying that our eyes would be open to the realization that we are God's riches. Those who follow Jesus are the people of God adopted into his forever family, adopted into his inheritance. You are his prized possession. You are his delight. The understanding, this understanding of our identity then gives us hope. And so hope is a strategy when our, our hope is anchored in our identity as followers of Jesus. Our hope is a strategy when our hope is anchored in our identity as followers of Jesus. There's a true story that's told of this handsome bachelor bachelor on uh, an island village. And in this island village, it was a custom that the man would pay a dowry to the father in order to be granted permission to marry his daughter. And so the average dowry price for a bride was about two to three cows. <laughs> but an exceptional, an exceptional woman might go as many as five cows. And so Johnny, this islander, went to the father of Sarita to, to negotiate a dowry. And now Sarita was not the most exceptional woman. 
Her posture was filled with shame. She was scared of her own shadow. In fact, some in the village speculated that the bachelor might be able to obtain the dowry for as little as one cow. But instead, Johnny went to Sarita's father and he offered eight cows. <laughs> and it was astounding. The village went nuts. They were like, what? How, could this, how could this happen? This is unheard of. Who gives eight cows? No one had ever paid such a, a high price for a bride, especially someone as timid and plain as Sarita. But after the wedding, something strange happened. Sarita began to take on kind of a noble bearing. She began to, to raise her head high. Her eyes sparkled. She beamed with an inner radiance of joy. And the story goes that in the years that followed, she became renowned as the most radiant and exceptional woman in all of the villages. In fact, her radiant grace became almost legendary among the islands. And so one day, someone approached Johnny and said, hey, why did you pay such an excessive price for a wife? He said, I wanted everyone to know how much I loved and valued her. And the price he offered for her hand in marriage gave her new perspective, and it changed her. Now, I don't suggest on the way home that you tell your wife how many cows she's worth Please, seriously. <laughs> but here's the point. God paid the highest possible price for you. Not in cows, but in his one and only son. You see, Jesus gave his life for you to free you, to rescue, to invite you into his forever family, and that makes you a prized possession of inestimable value. You are God's treasured, precious possession. Paul's praying that the eyes of our hearts would be open to the reality of the way that God thinks about us. You see, hope is a strategy when centered on a certainty, the certainty of God's character and his promises. It's a strategy when it's anchored in our calling from God and our identity is found in Jesus. But where do I go from there? How does it affect my life? Well, I think that answer is found in the definition of hope we're looking at this morning. Hope is a confidence in God's character and a certain expectation for the future that changes our present. Here's what that looks like. Things were unraveling quickly in the, in the southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom had already been defeated and taken into captivity. The southern kingdom had had this series of wicked, bad kings and things weren't looking good. Drought had devastated the land to the point that the, that the fields produced little to no fruit. The cattle had either starved or had been stolen by, by their enemies. And so the prophet Habakkuk looks at all of this and he looks and, and he describes the situation what sounds a lot like a Hebrew version of a bad country song. My girl left me, I lost my job, my truck don't run, my dog died and my beer's warm. <laughs> Habakkuk knew what was to come for Judah, and it didn't look good. Invasion, deprivation, death were on the horizon. 
And so as we read in his little book, the prophet Habakkuk is looking to God for hope. In chapter three, he begins to remind himself in prayer of God's faithfulness and power and rescuing before. And begins to reorient his thinking. Now it didn't make his troubles go away. It didn't solve the problem that was coming his way. But it certainly changed the way that he prayed. Because here's the the truth. Remembering God's faithfulness. Reflecting on his character. And the certainty of his promises. Begins to reorient our, our prayers. Begins to fortify our faith. And so Habakkuk is reminding himself of God's promises and his power, and then you almost get the sense that he does, takes a long, deep breath. And then he says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. You see, he was being real with how he feels, but he didn't stay that way because he continues. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And though the fig tree doesn't bud and there's no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be, <clears throat> I will be joyful in God my Savior because I can be confident in him. I am certain of his faithfulness. I am certain of his power. I am certain of who he is. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He's my hope. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. It's a rally cry of hope. He doesn't let the darkness surrounding him crush his spirit, but but neither does he shrug it off with just kind of like, ah, better days ahead. But he looks destruction straight in the eye and still has the strength to say, given the choice, I choose God. I choose joy. It comes from a confidence in God's character and a certain expectation for the future. And so here in Ephesians, Paul's praying that the Ephesians' faith would mature, that they would know the great hope of God, that they would know there's always, there's always a dawn with God. The, the night doesn't last forever. And in the midst of that night, God is not absent or concerned. No, God is a living presence, a living hope for us who put our lives in him. You see, This is the hope of our calling in Christ Jesus. Paul says it this way. We know that the the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. That is our certain hope. All of this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. Don't be overwhelmed. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us right now, today, this moment, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here's what he's saying. When you realize what is happening in you, 
you worry less about what's happening to you. That means that flat tire you had last week when you were in a hurry and you got frustrated and angry and upset is working for you. It's preparing you for this day ahead. It's teaching you something about how to be patient, how to handle pressure. It's giving you a chance to exercise some of the truth about Jesus swimming around in your head. That coffee you spilled on your white shirt, that way that you feel so tired and drained at the end of the day, the way that your your shoulder hurts and there's a pain there that you never had before, those plans that fell through are all working in you in some way. Maybe reminding you that this world is not our home. This world is not all there is. Maybe reminding us that life is but a blip in eternity. Maybe reminding us that Jesus endured so much more for me. I think that's the point. That's what Paul wants these Ephesians to see. They're not lost lost in a meaningless routine of events or, or drifting through some degree of numbness day after day after day after day after day. But it's all working together in them, in us. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I believe Paul is calling us to live fully for Jesus. Fully in a certain hope, he's praying that that we wouldn't give our lives to just lesser things and, and cobwebs, but we would give ourselves to things we can anchor our lives to, things that are greater, things that are eternal. Because that's where our hope lies in that certainty. It's what Paul talks about when he's marveling at our future resurrection and he says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is a law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you, but always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not worthless. It's not cobwebs. You see, this certainty we have in Jesus is a dynamic force in our lives that changes our present, that gives us confidence to live for Jesus fully. Someone has said, if we don't have the hope that Christ is for us, then we will be engaged in self-preservation and self-enhancement. Man, I don't want to live that way. But give your life to God, understanding the hope of his calling in your life, knowing you're his treasured possession, that when, that's when we find freedom to live without fear. That's when we find the freedom to live in confidence, in the confidence, in the hope, the confident hope, the certain hope that we have in the certainty of God's character, the certainty of his promises. Let me close with this. I love reading the stories of men and women who faithfully gave their lives to make Jesus make sense in areas of the world that were once hostile. John Patton was one of those missionaries. 
He had a successful ministry in the city of Glasgow, Scotland, where he was feeding the poor and and he was reaching out to people and and the ministry was growing and thriving and it was amazing and people were so proud of, of John Patton and it was in the middle of this that John Patton said, man, I have a heart for the people in the South Pacific, the headhunters in the island of South Pacific. And people were scratching their heads, how could you leave all of this and and go there? It's dangerous. He said, nope, this is what I wanna do. And so he went before the church and and he told them, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to go overseas to reach these islanders with the good news of Jesus. And one of the elders exploded and got in his face and said, the cannibals, you're, you're gonna be eaten by cannibals. What a waste of a life. What a waste of all this success that you've had in ministry here. And to this, out of an understanding of the hope of his calling, his identity as a follower of Jesus, listen to John Patton's response. Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen redeemer, Jesus. See, there's someone who lived their life with a confidence in God's character, a certain expectation for the future that changed his present, that gave him confidence, that gave him courage to do hard things. You see, this certain hope changes our future, but it also clarifies the present. And so in light of this, how do we pray? How do we pray differently for the next generation that's that's coming behind us? Can we pray that they might know the hope of what they've been called to? Can we pray that they would know the hope of what it means to be God's inheritance, God's treasured possession? What if I prayed in difficult circumstances this way? What if I prayed for myself and others in the church in this way? Well, this morning, I want to lead us in prayer as we close. You may not be comfortable with talking to God, but this morning I just want to lead you through prayer, lead you through part of a psalm, and just fill in the blanks as as you talk to God this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope that we have in the certainty of your character. Father, thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you for your love that you gave your son for me, that I'm I'm your treasured possession. Just encourage you where you're at, where you're seated. If you just give, think about those things that you're thankful for. If you've said yes to Jesus, are you thankful that, that God called you? He's given you inheritance. He's given you a part, a place in his forever family. He's given himself for you. Thank him for that this morning.
Father, we thank you for that life, that confidence we have in you. Father, I know for myself, I know for others in this room today, Lord, we've are sometimes prone to wander. We're sometimes prone to be distracted by all the things of life all around us. Rather than rooting and anchoring our, our lives in you. So Father, you say if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we agree with you about these things. We confess to you that God, we, we've been distracted. Just take some time this, this morning to talk to him and say, God, I, I feel pulled in so many directions, so distracted from following you fully. Father, forgive me. Psalmist says, you're forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. That I might give you the attention, the awe, and the respect that you deserve. Father, help us, help me to trust in you to trust in you, to give us an undivided heart that we're not distracted, but fully engaged as followers of Jesus with the hope of, of our calling, the hope of our identity. Would you pray that this morning as you talk to him? God, give me an undivided heart that's united, that's focused, that's pursuing you. Father, change our prayers. Help us to pray different. Lord, help us to, to pray out of what we know to be true about you and your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness to all creation. Lord, we may, we may, may we pray for ourselves and our church and the next generation, the, the people around us, that we might know the hope that is found in you, that is found in Jesus. Father, we love you too. We thank you for your unfailing love. We pray in Jesus' name.